0: Welcome to The Dispatch Podcast. We're here with a special lineup. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, and we've got Kevin Williamson, newly joined to The Dispatch family, and Andrew Egger, Associate Editor at The Dispatch. we got plenty to talk about today, per usual. We're gonna talk about how to think about a subject like abortion in the midterms and what effect it has and what it will mean after the midterms as well. A look at sort of the pre-narrative on the midterm elections. And lastly, maybe just some speculation on what's going on in both parties as they're thinking about 2024. And yes, all the operatives already looking to 2024. Let's dive right in. Kevin, let's start with uh, a preliminary question, which is how do we determine whether and how abortion is actually a factor in the midterm elections? You know, if Stacey Abrams was going to lose by 10, but then only loses by six and it was abortion, how will we actually know that instead of just saying like, well, Stacey Abrams lost, therefore the abortion messaging didn't work?
1: Yeah, I think it's essentially impossible to really say um, in a very strong way, um, even retrospectively, how big of an issue it was, because every election is unique and they all have their particular eccentricities. So while there may be you know, some effect on Democratic turnout among people who really, really care about abortion rights, to the extent that it actually influences any particular electoral outcome, it may be something counterintuitive. For instance, it seems to be hurting Raphael Warnock. Uh, as an issue. So if abortion ends up being the thing that really shapes the the Senate majority, it will have done so in a way that wasn't expected. Um, but one thing we do know is that almost no voters um, are single-issue abortion voters. Um, it's something like 5%. Um, people who put abortion as their their top issue, it's a pretty, pretty low-rated issue among people. And those voters, for the most part, aren't up for grabs. They tend to be very committed partisans, We're not going to switch from voting on one side or the other because they're upset about inflation or foreign policy or something like that. So I have my doubts that it is um, an important issue, particularly in uh, congressional races. I think that um, presidential campaigns, which are much more, you know, culture war proxy wars, um, it probably matters a bit more than it does in House races or even in Senate races. But I don't know that there's any very strong way to to evaluate it.
0: And yet Andrew, I feel like everyone will. I mean, it really annoyed me, for instance, after the Glenn Youngkin win in Virginia in 2021, when basically everyone just decided that whatever the candidates ran their ads on was why they won or lost those elections. When without sort of any other evidence. Like, well, you ran TV ads on that and then you won an election. When again, in fact, like the margin is what Matters. It's whether voters switched sides, as Kevin talked about, that's one way to win an election on an issue, or voters turned out to vote who were otherwise going to stay home. And as Kevin said, you know, the voters who have abortion as their number one issue, um, both aren't up for grads between Republicans and Democrats, but also our high turnout voters. And considering 2018 was an incredibly high turnout election, 2020 was a very high turnout election, it's hard to think of who those voters are who uh, would turn out just on this issue and were not going to turn out otherwise. But I'm still stuck because at the end of this election, everyone is going to want to know what effect this issue had. And you look at something like the Kansas ballot referendum from the summer, and that's something where we got some real data. You know, in Kansas, there was very high turnout, unexpectedly high turnout on that ballot measure. It's pretty clear that a 100,000 or so Republicans voted against the ballot measure, which would have um, put additional restrictions on abortion. On the other hand, status quo does really well in ballot measures. I.e., if your ballot measure is trying to change something, which generally all ballot measures are, it comes in with like a five to ten percent deficit because people are like, I don't know, like why would I change something? Seems okay right now. Um, also, Kansas is a weird state; has a Democratic governor. Uh, just because a state votes a certain way at the presidential level doesn't tell you a whole lot about how the state works. In fact, I saw this really cool stat that only five states in the last 20 years have had unified, single-party, statewide office holders and presidential. So most states actually sort of have, you know, a little more nuance to their politics. So, Andrew, what's the thing you'll be looking at the day after the election, when someone asks you, did abortion make a difference?
2: Well, the good news is we're going to have at least one more Kansas-esque data point. That's, that's just a hard and fast question on that, which is there's a, a constitutional amendment being proposed to the state constitution in Kentucky. Um, where essentially they now have uh, very restrictive uh, abortion laws that have been passed in the last couple of years um, that have now been able to go into effect after Dobbs. Um, but a lot of these new laws are being challenged before the, before the state Supreme Court, um, basically just trying to reestablish uh, a right to an abortion on on state constitutional grounds, sort of parallel to the one that was established on federal constitutional grounds under Roe v. Wade. Um and Republicans in the state have put forward these ballot initiatives that basically say nothing in our, uh, it be an amendment to the constitution to say nothing in this can be construed as having a right to an abortion. So it's another just kind of straight up or down question, a little more straightforwardly phrased also than the Kansas measure. Um, so that, that'll be interesting. I I do think that, um, I mean, I, 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 I have been clinging to like a particular kind of narrative hobby horse on all of this, which is that, that one, you can, you can see why, uh, there is like a, a, a big upheaval to conventional wisdom of the sort that you guys are talking about, about, um, you know, abortion's effect on, on motivating new voters and things like that in the wake of a decision like Dobbs that really does kind of, uh, cause upheaval in the, in the policy regime all over the country. I mean, you have a lot of people who have it's pushed to the forefront of their mind, um, in a way that it hasn't been before, but, uh, you also kind of have to map that against how bad people are feeling about kind of inflation and economic issues at any given point in time. And I don't think it's an accident that, uh, you know, the the moment when we got so much of the narrative of, wow, Dobbs is really energizing Democrats, and it was coming right out of Kansas, and it was coming as, as polls were swinging a little bit back Democrats' way, was also during the kind of um, brief. Ish period where the economic indicators were starting to look better and, and you weren't getting, uh, you know, Joe Biden slammed every day on on gas prices and inflation and gas was creeping down again. So I think that, you know, in an environment where uh, in an environment where the economic uh, indicators are less strong, uh, driving, driving motivation for, for voters less, I. Um, which maybe will be you know one cycle from now, two cycles from now. Whenever whenever we get one of those where Republicans and Democrats are seen roughly equivalent on some of these like core kitchen table issues, that will probably be a better uh, uh election to get a really good crystallized sense of what the new kind of a uh, uh, abortion um median is.
0: There's also that ballot measure in Michigan which is going to be the reverse, right? It's going to codify a state constitutional right to an abortion in that state. So we'll be able to sort of compare those to some extent, but I think on the candidate stuff, um, it's really hard because to me it doesn't matter the worst thing you can do is look at how hard a candidate ran on the abortion issue and whether they won or lost and say that that then tells you something about where voters are on abortion without any baseline to go from.
1: One thing that's probably worth noting is that um, with all these you know state ballot measures and such is that abortion is very much a live issue at the level of state legislatures. Um, Even in in Texas, you have uh, Republicans in the legislature saying, well, maybe it's time to revisit um, our our trigger law because, you know, in Texas has this very close to absolute ban on abortion that was um, put in place before the Dobbs decision. And Republicans are finding that, uh, I think, politically difficult for them. And so there is talk of, you know, of of, um, opening that up for debate. And there's already, you know, Texas right to life is, is ready to. Stage primary challenges to uh, some Republicans over this. It's going to be a very, very um, live issue in the state legislatures, which is another way of saying that Dobbs did what it was supposed to do. You know, we always talked about returning the issue uh, to the states. Well, now it's been returned to the states. And it looks like that's where it's actually going to be fought out politically.
0: All right. So now let me ask a different version of this question, Kevin, which is let's assume that Democrats underperform where the polling has them right now, that Republicans take, they take back the Senate and the House, but potentially take back the Senate with 52 seats. So for instance, they win in both um, Nevada and Georgia while holding on to Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina. What does that do to the abortion conversation in the country? Like how do Democrats react to that? And frankly, like how do Republicans react to that?
1: Yeah, it's kind of funny. I was reading the um, Lisa Lair's, um midterms write up in the uh, in the New York Times, and it begins with this really odd, um, to my mind, disquisition on these are not normal times with the country still reeling from COVID nineteen and uh, the Capitol riot and um, the Dobbs decision. And I just read through that. Think does anyone really think this election is going to be very much influenced by COVID aftermath, January sixth, and probably not very much by um, Dobbs either. So I think um, I think there was a kind of, cons- well, I know there was a concerted effort to um, try to make this election a kind of, you know, proxy national referendum on the abortion question. And I think that um, Democrats were very invested in doing that when they thought they were going to do reasonably well. <laughs> and now that they think they're not going to probably do that well, and may in fact even underperform their polls, I think that the morning after the election, it'll be, a, we're never talking about abortion. No one had anything to do with abortion. This is all about, you know, all about inflation. And uh, because inflation is an issue that unless something really, really terrible happens, will eventually go away and resolve itself. Um, whereas the abortion fight's going to be there for a uh, long, long time. So I kind of expect to see Democrats um, walking away from the issue sort of sideways um, after the election, if they do um, poorly. I think that the one thing that we can say is that the effort to, um, You know, make a kind of national rally around the issue uh, failed and and sputtered. And that seems to be the case, irrespective of whether Democrats underperform or or overperform their their polls.
0: Yeah. I mean, Andrew, after we just finished saying there's really not going to be a great way, the day after the election at least, to break down the effect abortion had, I still feel like both political party zeitgeists will very much be affected by that. And again, assuming that Democrats underperform, I think you could see as Kevin said, Democrats backing away from the issue, you know, saying it was always going to be about inflation. You know, we tried our best, but what are you going to do? But I could also see Republicans getting overly bullish that somehow the country is with them on abortion, which will also be a fact-free statement.
2: Obviously, you could see that happen, right? Um, and you almost certainly will see that happen, certainly scattered throughout some some state legislatures and, and things like that. Um, I do think that that one of the lessons that a lot of the kind of pro-life groups and particularly um, pro-life you know legislators took away from the like initial Dobbs backlash was okay, 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 we really need to at least do some triangulating for where people actually are um, on, on these questions. We can't agitate for a national ban and we actually all ought to get on the same page. Uh, as to like what are kind of across the board um, conservative, but not so conservative that we alienate like 90 percent of the voters is going to look like, and that what that is essentially looked like was the the Lindsey Graham fifteen week um, limit bill, which is you know if 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 Republicans see that basically across the board as as kind of like a place to a place to get on get on board with the thing and and, and a place to start, I, I'm not sure there's enormous political downsides um, to 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 keeping things right there, you know, which is all right. I mean, you, you still get to kind of bill it as like fearless swashbuckling legislating. It's like, it'd be like a big, a big policy thing to do something like that at the national level, but it's a lot more kind of in keeping with what every poll uh, kind of pegs the, the temperature of the electorate at than. Um, And I think that if Republicans can be kind of disciplined about that sort of thing and basically say, you know, this is the, the, uh, kind of key pro-life lobby policy issue that we're pushing for in the present moment, uh, the collateral damage will be a lot less uh, than than if you get, you know, uh, a million Herschel Walkers up in there basically trying to pass a, a, an actual ban on the federal level of the procedure kind of kind of across the board.
0: So, Kevin, let's move topics to just broader midterms generally. Um, you see a lot of pre start happening at this point in any election of explaining why, if you're going to lose, this wasn't your fault. And certainly within factions of political parties, um, within the Republican side, I am expecting quite a bit of factionalizing of whose fault it is that ex-Senate candidate didn't make it through. Is it the Donald Trump wing for helping that candidate win the primary in the first place? Is it the McConnell wing for then not providing the air support and the you know on the ground support to get them past the finish line, et cetera, et cetera? But the reason we're not seeing as much of that right now is because those candidates are all looking at least highly competitive for those races. On the Democratic side, though, you're already seeing some of that intra-party faction squabbling and blame casting of so-and-so isn't progressive enough, so-and-so is too progressive, so-and-so didn't talk about this right. Uh, I'm curious if any of that has struck you as effective, true, interesting,
1: I kind of I, I like prebuttals. I just I enjoy reading them because they really um, shed an almost kind of literary light on the wheeliness of the uh, human condition. My favorite one that I've seen recently was, um, you know, there's this race in Rhode Island that it looks like uh, Republicans going to win. And uh, he was a former mayor running against the former state treasurer and the Democrat, who was the state treasurer, says, well, you know, big city mayors start with uh, this great name ID uh, advantage. Uh, really, big city mayor, huh? This guy was <laughs> the mayor of Cranston, Rhode Island, which I didn't know was a thing until uh, until I was reading about this this race. So um, that's um, that's a that's a gold medal, A plus, gold star, uh, pre Yeah, I think that um, I mean politics is about petty advantage seeking. Um, that's why petty people are good at politics, and petty people are really good at organizing uh, political campaigns. And uh, you know, there's 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 a time and a place for pettiness. So, if your job in life for twenty or thirty years is seeking tiny little advantages in the hopes that, in the aggregate, they will add up to some kind of great advantage, then you want to make the most out of losing. You know, you want to you want to lose in a way that um, that uh, confers some kind of backdoor advantages. So, a lot of this stuff is pretty predictable. You know, you've got Bernie Sanders out doing. I think he's doing events in eight states. Right. And um, if Democrats um, do reasonably well, then the kind of left wing of the party will say, you know, this is because Bernie was out there firing up the progressives. If they don't do well, the same progressives will say, well, it's because Bernie only did eight states and uh, and we've got, you know, 50 in the country and we've got to be everywhere. So. Um, I think that this one actually will end up being. One of those rare elections that you can kind of put a pin on uh, the day after the election i mean this is essentially going to be an election about the economy i think that when you have declining real wages which we still do um that pretty much is the the mastery issue that's going on you know unless there's a, a war or an invasion or uh, a plague upon the land or, or something like that and um i think the day after the election the democrats at least the you know halfway responsible and honest ones are going to get up in the morning and say well, you know the economy stunk um we think this isn't really our fault uh, it's COVID aftermath and also you know a lot of the spending that's driven inflation was happening during the trump administration as well so it's not really just on us we don't really have to change anything and um in a certain limited way they'll be right about that i mean for the purposes of this particular election i don't think you're going to be able to say well it's because they're crazy on social issues or because they've alienated a lot of people with the woke stuff or anything like that. Those things really still matter. I'm just not sure that they're going to be the issue in this election. So hopefully, um, if this is all behind us in, in 2024, which I rather expect that it will be at least the specific issue of inflation, um, we'll be having a very, very different conversation. And I don't think anyone's going to be talking very much about how 2022 um, gave us any indicators of what was going to happen a couple of years later.
0: This is the thing that really strikes me, Andrew. I feel like you know, if you talk to people, they'll often be like, oh, this election's been all over the place. And, you know, you just every week there's a different vibe shift. And my reaction, is was like, not really. So actually, this is a very easy narrative right now for me to look at and say, this is the first midterm of a new president's administration. We have a lot of historical data about what that looks like for the party out of power. It's usually pretty good for them. You have low approval ratings for that president, and you have bad economic indicators. You have good job numbers uh, to some, you know, we have low unemployment compared to at other times, but uh, wage growth is terrible, inflation's bad, gas prices are bad, grocery store prices are bad, you know, real things that people see every day. And so you would see those big picture indicators and say, this will be a very good year for Republicans and a pretty bad year for Democrats. And none of the micro stuff is really going to matter. And then the vibe shift, quote unquote, happens in late June. Democrats think it's because of the Dobbs opinion at the Supreme Court about abortion. But if that were true, it should have held. Instead, what was also happening right then is that gas prices went down substantially and quickly and inflation started to cool down. And so you had really good economic or better economic indicators that looked like it could be a turning of the economic ship. Then it became clear that it was not really turning and the vibe shifted back. All of this can be explained by the economy and those big picture, very clear historical markers that we use for midterms, and very little of it based on, as Kevin said, you know, woke stuff, COVID, abortion, anything that other people want this to be about. Just not a lot of data on that. Um, And so I, I find any of the blame casting of the factions is going to fall on pretty deaf ears for me because this feels right now relatively baked. Now there's going to be good candidates and bad candidates and those things always matter on the margins, but on issues and stuff like that, meh. What do you think?
2: I I do think it's kind of funny because, you know, coming into the summer, um, coming into the, into the new year, um, You had all these indicators like, of course, it's going to be a great year for Republicans for all the reasons you mentioned. Uh, and then Democrats seemingly in the in the polls start to defy gravity in, in summertime. And everybody's like, whoa, what's going on here? We need a narrative for that. And now that that is sagging back, I'm, I'm kind of just like interrogating my own thinking here. Um, I think that I I was falling into the trap too of just kind of being like, okay, well, that's not true anymore. So like, what's the new narrative? Like we're casting around, what can explain this? But it's, it's like you say, it's just the same phenomenon that's been there all along. Joe Biden's approval rating has never been good uh, this year. The, the economic indicators have continued to be bad. They started to look like they were trending in the in the right direction for a little bit there but they were still quite bad they never they never really improved other than gas um for a short while there i do think i mean i i I don't want to write off Dobbs altogether i do think i mean it's it's an enormous policy change that 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 impacts people's lives in a major way um and it does tend to be the case that that you know you get punished for doing something uh in american politics and and you know Republicans writ large didn't do the overturning of Dobbs, uh, except as like a 50, 50 year, um, judicial project, but obviously they were perceived as the people who had kind of brought about this, this new reality and the polls pretty consistently showed that, that, uh, on balance people were favoring the Democrats and all that. So I don't, I don't want to say there was none of that, but I do think that especially as the economic indicators come back, uh, increasingly negative, uh, you just had less and less people for whom they were there. They have that front of mind, um, especially, you know, it's receding in the summer and into the, into, into history.
0: or 10 million. They can help you whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you are on a fixed income. They can help financially resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com/dispatch. All right, last thing on the midterms. I've been thinking a lot about the Mike Lee Evan McMullen race. And look, I don't, you know, everyone wants to make this some neck and neck thing where Evan McMullen might pull it out. He might, but there's not a whole lot to support that possibility right now. It just looks like it'll be a much tighter race than would otherwise be expected. Evan McMullen had uh, been a Republican staffer. He then ran as an independent in 2016 against Donald Trump in sort of a fanciful uh, protest run and is running as an independent who was then endorsed by the Utah Democratic Party in Utah. It was a relatively close vote in the Utah Democratic Party, by the way. They had a Democratic candidate, and a very slim majority chose to ditch that candidate, endorse McMullen for the hopes of exactly what's happening now, that there hasn't really been a close Senate race in uh, Utah, like in a long time, ever. Uh, I think I looked back, 1970 was the last time that Utah voted for a Democratic senator. And so the Democrats were like, okay, look, we're a party out of power. Let's see if we can get the really bad guy out to have someone who we disagree with at least less in. Again, I doubt McMullen can win this. I think um, there hasn't been a single poll showing him up. Most of the polls show him within three or four points, which again, in Utah, compared to a normal Democratic candidate, very, very tight, very interesting. I'm curious, Kevin, if you think that other out-of-power parties, and I'm really thinking specifically the California GOP here, sort of known for their wacky political strategy, will take any lessons from this? uh, Or B, you know, would it have mattered if the Texas Democratic Party had endorsed, you know, a Will Hurd or someone instead of Beto? Like, should these parties start being more incremental than absolutist?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that would be good for, for the country and, uh, you know, for, uh, for governance and all that, but it's, the incentives are all kind of against it. Uh, that particular race, two thoughts on that. One, I hope that if he, he loses, um, and, and kind of goes away from the scene, we can all stop pretending that it was ever clever to call him Egg McMuffin. Uh, that was just an annoying thing that people w- would sort of do thinking it was, it was kind of witty. And, um, it, it never was, and, and probably should not have been indulged as much as it was. Also, if you want to know what Utah Democrats are thinking, we could probably get them on a conference call because there are like six of them, and it's um, it's it's not that um, not that hard to uh, to figure them out. I don't think. Yeah, I, I do think that at at a certain level, some of the you know kind of no hoper parties like the Democrats in Texas or the um, or the Republicans in California ought to think about saying, well obviously someone who is a conventional kind of up and down the line ideological member of our party doesn't have much of a chance here but we would like to to make some some marginal improvements you know i have a, a friend in texas who is a, a very very trump critical republican who has i think toyed with the idea of trying to run for office as a democrat which i think probably wouldn't work very well but um if the democrats were smarter they would be out looking for people like that um to say um look, we have something to say to people who aren't already 100% on our side. Now, I think there's a couple of important differences between that, which is that I think that the Republicans in California are in much worse shape than the Democrats in Texas are um, in the sense that, um, you know, Texas is an urbanizing state. And as the population becomes more urban, uh, the Democrats will have a better shot. Um, They already win every big city in Texas and a lot of the uh, near suburbs as well, which is where the people are and increasingly where they are moving. So um, these aren't exactly parallel cases um you know i'm a I'm essentially an Eisenhower Republican. you know I've got a lot of uh sympathy for people who um believe that you know compromise and negotiation and such things are uh, are good and worthwhile and part of a a, a healthy and normal and uh, productive kind of politics, unlike the one that we have right now, which is basically politics as entertainment and politics as a uh, culture war. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm in that sense, I'm glad the Democrats in Utah did what they did with McMullen. Now, I think that it would have been better with almost anybody else. You know, McMullen is this kind of, you know, Charlie Crist kind of figure who's like, well, this party won't take me now, that party won't take me, and eventually I'm going to have to run as a libertarian. And uh, that's, uh, that's going to be the end of it. But um, yeah, I suppose that's um, probably a a good development. I mean, it's a race that we're going to lose anyway, right? At least they um, they get to be a little bit close, uh, have a little bit of hope, and, and also legitimately say, look, we're willing to um, go outside of our ideological comfort zone um, when local conditions require that that be the case.
0: That's what gets kind of messy, though. If you're going to lose the race anyway, Andrew, then wouldn't it have been better to have the Democrats' message out there even if it were, you know, a 20 point loss, you know, to have a Democratic candidate who believes in all of the principles of the Democratic Party. On the other hand, that person would get zero attention, whereas this race is now getting national attention. We're talking about it here all because it is a closer race.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, I I, I don't know like who the, who the Utah Democrats are who are saying, you know, like, well, if if my voice isn't heard right now, then, then it's like a real loss for, for the national party politics or something like that. I I mean, I think the, and the national environment we've all been talking about, you know, um, it, it it's no less unfortunate for McMullen than it is for Stacey Abrams or somebody. Right. I mean, the, the, I, I don't see like a close McMullen loss as like a, the death knell of the electoral strategy or anything like that, because, you know, maybe maybe there is a range of outcomes in which you in which he wins under a slightly different set of circumstances. I only have two um, kind of uh, not all that actually useful, but I think they're fun uh, things about the, the, the McMullen candidacy that are, that are interesting to me. One of which is that Mike Lee voted for him in 2016, um, for president, uh, which no. is just kind of,
0: Wild. I, I just,
2: I just love that. I mean, it's like, it's, you know, it's six years. What, what a difference. Um, the other of which is that, uh, nationally in 2016, Evan McMullen got about 730,000 votes, uh, and in the same election in, in Utah, Mike Lee got about 760,000 votes. So I'm interested to see whether Evan McMullen can surmount his own national uh, presidential voting total.
0: Yeah, I mean, another interesting race to look at in sort of the out of power parties is Lanhee Chen in California, a Republican who looks like he has a really good shot at uh, winning statewide in California as a Republican and that he's actually you know, the type of Republican that can win in a state like California, which you would think, again, would be really helpful for some of these parties looking to make inroads in states. And I mean, my goodness, if you're in a state where your party hasn't won a statewide election in 20 plus years, the foothold really matters. You don't need Stacey Abrams or Beta O'Rourke to sort of be your first person. You need anyone with that letter next to their name, frankly. Uh, And so I think the California GOP has done something um, surprisingly smart by getting behind a very moderate guy. He was the policy director for Romney. Um, So I've worked with him twice. I went to law school with him. I know him quite well. And uh, his message has been, hey, the money in this state is a hot mess, The Democrats are going to all be in charge. Don't you want someone who isn't a Democrat looking at how they're spending your money? (laughs) That's a pretty good message. So good, in fact, that the LA Times endorsed him. Uh, So we'll see about those parties out of power. All right, last topic for today 2024. So, for those who have not spent their careers uh, as political operatives, I will tell you that October of a midterm starts getting very chatty. As people in your office start suddenly having a lot more coffees out of the office, not leaving their phones lying around, their text messages are now hidden, et cetera, because October is when you get your next job. (laughs) Um, And the map is fascinating. I mean, we've talked so much about the presidential race, and don't worry, we'll talk about it more. But the Senate map in 2024? Woo, it does not look like this year's Senate map. So, of the 33 states that are up, because this is the Senate, right? So, every time there are 33 seats up, except for that one time that there's 34, Uh, 23 of the 33 are held by Democrats, 10 are held by Republicans. So, right off the bat, you have Democrats just defending a lot of seats, which can spread resources really thin. But let me tell you some of the states Montana, West Virginia, Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, those will all be states that Democrats are on the defense in. And that's, uh, we don't even know whether any of those current senators are planning to retire. So if those are open seats, it gets even messier. As we know, open seats, almost no matter what, tend to make for highly competitive Senate races. Um, Open seats in a state like West Virginia, frankly, wouldn't be competitive, though I think Joe Manchin, of course, runs again. Um, you know, Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, blah. Um, now on the Republican side, the seats that are up, Texas, Florida, there's going to be an open seat in Indiana. That might be the best hope of a pickup, which is all to say if, uh, Republicans get control of the Senate after this midterm election, there is nearly no hope of Democrats taking back control in 2024, even if they win the presidency again. There won't, the coattails can't really at that point pick up. I'll, I'll read you all 10 states because it's fun. Um, North Dakota, uh, Utah, Wyoming, Nebraska, Missouri. What was that one? That's Mississippi, <laughs> Florida, Texas, uh, Tennessee, Indiana. I mean, none of those are great pickup opportunities for the Democrats. Kevin, let's start with the Senate. What does that mean for a political party where it will be a highly contested presidential race regardless in 2024? And let's assume for a second that they lose the Senate, that Republicans are in control. At some point, do you just not fight this that hard? I mean, that's a lot of money to spread out over your defensive states, not a lot of offensive opportunities. This is a really tough um, strategic question if you're the chair of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee.
1: Yeah, I, I think one of the most amusing prospects for our, our our politics would be, you know, cocaine Mitch rolling out with nothing to lose in the next election, you know, <laughs> uh, just as confident that he's going to be there. Um Yeah, the the Senate is increasingly kind of weird uh, to look at because Senate races are turning into these little mini presidential races where they're essentially kind of strangely nationalized elections and uh, where you've got the two kind of um, strong ideological tendencies in both parties expressing themselves very, very strongly in Senate candidates in a way they don't necessarily do in House candidates and and state legislatures and things like that. So I, I, I... one of my my little rules of politics is that when Democrats are in power, they act like they'll never be out of power, and when Republicans are out of power, they act like they'll never be back in. So I think that um, this may bring out you know some kind of kamikaze tendencies in the uh, the Democrats if they think there's you know no real chance of uh, of uh, getting themselves back into power in the Senate, which they care about a great deal for obvious reasons. Then it may you know, sort of make them ideologically. Maximizing and uh, interested in very very aggressive uh, obstruction, and I like obstruction. That's what the Senate's there to do. And a more obstructionist Senate is a Senate that's doing its constitutional job. So that's uh, that's all fine with me. Um, I suppose there's a sense in which that if there's a, a, a sense that there's a very strong Republican. A likelihood of Republican control of the Senate, it may benefit a Democratic presidential candidate in 2024 because Americans do have a kind of uh, at least notional and sometimes measurable preference for divided government.
0: That's a really good point. Andrew, any thoughts on what 2024 Senate races might look like?
2: Uh, very few. Um, it's the last uh, cycle in which Republicans will have to shake their fist at the 2020 Georgia outcome, uh, as as you know, a thing that's just, uh, curdled everybody's milk for, for, you know, ever since then, uh, obviously you only, you, you, I, when when people are doing the math, uh, you know, you, you, you're always looking at the current, uh, seats that are up obviously. And then the, the ones that are right around the corner, it's always very funny to me. Like, like nobody will be talking about David Perdue and Kelly Leffler in 2023, 2024, 2025, but, but, their their failure to launch uh, lives on until until the cycle after the cycle after this one.
0: I think it's interesting in how it might affect republican office holders. It's one thing if you think you may only be in control of a chamber for 2 years and how you think of how to spend that 2 years. If you know that you can't lose control in the next election basically, um and so you're going to be chairman at least for 4 years for instance of a committee. I think you could see some behavioral differences of folks in office.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. um, Our assumption here, of course, is it's going to bring out the irresponsibility in Republicans. Um, There is a way of looking at this that it would be, well, if you don't really have to worry about losing control the next uh, time there's an election, that you could be, you know, a more uh, statesmanlike, sensible, sober senator. Of course, we all know that's never going to happen because it's just not where our politics is right now. And so the, the, the possibility- What a this-
0: hilarious notion, Kevin Williamson, adorable.
1: <laughs> adorable. So yeah, the prospect of that working out in a way that would bring out, you know, the, the Republican and Republicans is um, unfortunately doesn't seem very possible.
0: Actually, let me ask you another question on that. Let's assume that Republicans take the House and Senate uh, in this election, and they have two more years of the Biden administration. Is there any policy area that you think republicans could pursue will pursue that biden would sign
1: uh possibly um republicans have really made their peace with um spending i think in a lot of ways in ways that i wish they hadn't (laughs) there are republicans out there who are very um excited about infrastructure projects and things like that now they don't want some you know multi-trillion dollar slot bucket of democratic wish list stuff but there may be some room for them to negotiate something on that um you know, Democrats have and Republicans have converging views in some ways on uh, things like trade. Um, you know, the kind of um, nationalistic, Trumpish view of economics is uh, is much more pronounced in the Demo- in the Republican Party than it was fifteen years ago or twenty years ago. But it's also not a world away from where uh, Joe Biden is. You know he has very similar views in lots of ways. He has very similar views about trade. He has very similar views about you know kind of a federal role in guiding uh, you know the economy in a in a broad kind of way. similar kinds of old fashioned you know hard hat industrial priorities so I, I I suspect that if if it were a less poisoned time um that you would see a lot of room for negotiation between the Biden administration and someone like say Marco Rubio, who um has in my view wrong views about this stuff, but views that are that are really quite compatible with um, with those of the Biden administration.
2: I I'd be interested to see uh, in a Republican Congress under Joe Biden what would happen in tech policy, um, whether it's uh, antitrust type stuff, some sort of Section Two Thirty reform. Basically, there's a lot of appetite both on Republican and Democratic sides to to uh, cut off big tech companies' cultural power at the knees. Obviously, they all disagree about. What that ought to look like, um, but there have been some uh, cross aisle, uh, especially in the antitrust department, um, because because they they can't all agree what these companies ought to look like. But 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 maybe one area that they can't agree on is there should be there should be more of them and smaller. Um, so so uh, I'd be interested to see whether whether that would push forward uh, policy in, in tech in any way.
0: That is a fascinating example and one that we should maybe just spend a lot more time on. Um, on this podcast down the road, I find it vaguely depressing that the only way you're going to get, I think, sort of the right policy, if you will, on some of our big cultural challenges is through divided government compromise. Um, And yet, I don't think anyone on any podcast talking about this issue is going to say, for instance, immigration is something that now, finally, Republicans and Democrats can meet together on, uh, say, we're absolutely securing the border, and we're giving citizenship to kids who were brought here uh, as minors by their parents, for instance. Something that we thought was so possible in 2013 um, doesn't feel even like it'll be part of the conversation in 2023. Sad. All right. Our last segment, not worth your time. This one, I'm going to put a question mark on the end of this segment. Not worth our time? Kevin, Liz Trust, the British Prime Minister, has resigned after 44 days in office. As someone noted, that is 4.1 Scaramucci's. The person who noted that was Anthony Scaramucci. Uh, I'm curious, are the shenanigans around Liz Truss's tenure and any fallout from it worth Americans' time to pay attention to?
1: Yeah, if I were an American politician or a political operative, I would... Very much keep an eye on what a national currency collapse looks like in terms of your <laughs> domestic politics, because I think this is going to be worth knowing one
2: of these days
0: um fascinating that you think that could be worth uh worth watching hmm.
2: A thing that is Andrew? no longer a thing that is no longer worth our time now that it has ended, but which has retroactively been demonstrated as very much worth everybody's time was uh, I think it was the Daily Star in in England that that when there was there was some column in the Economist that 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 had some throwaway line about I think it was the Economist had some throwaway line about how how Liz Truss's shelf life as as Prime Minister was was going to be about the same as as a head of lettuce uh, and. And these uh, these intrepid reporters at this tabloid set up a live stream with a picture of Liz Truss and a head of lettuce. And it was just going for about six days. Will Liz Truss outlast this lettuce? And uh, and she did not. The lettuce, the lettuce uh, triumphed. Um, So that's that's been a fun thing to keep kind of keep tabs on. It's not looking so good. The lettuce, although they've they've dressed it up some. It's got like a wig and googly eyes and glasses now. But it it is the definitive winner of the of the competition.
0: I read some like very serious, uh, you know, piece that sort of those first out pieces of Liz Truss has resigned as prime minister. And like the fourth paragraph was like, at one point, unfavorably compared to a soggy head of lettuce. (laughs) Uh, This is the kind of serious foreign policy conversations um, that I really rely on you two for. Thank you, Andrew and Kevin, for joining this week. And uh, become a member of the Dispatch. Hop in the comments section. Tell us what you think, what you liked, what you didn't. Or rate us wherever you're getting your podcast. It helps other people find it. Or just enjoy the rest of your day. It's a beautiful fall day. The leaves are turning in most of the places where you're probably listening to this. Uh, and if it's not turning where you are, then enjoy the warmth because it's kind of chilly here.